so I'm at train station. But no, I'm not doing an episode on train travel. Sorry if that's a disappointment for you. It's because for this episode of Create the Future, we're going on a day trip. And I'll be visiting Wakehurst, which is an enormous, wild botanic garden in East Sussex, which is linked to Kew Gardens. I've had a pretty stressful weekend, moving house, you know, lifting boxes, going up and down steps. So to be honest, I think it'll be a really welcome break for me to get out of the city, take my aching bones out to nature and learn about the relationship between gardening, science and engineering. So we have arrived and I can breathe and there is this amazing crisp scented air that is now going through my lungs a little bit different than the London train station air that I left not very long ago. So I am standing on this gorgeous little path. There are absolutely immense trees around me and I'm looking down onto a valley and it's just utterly beautiful. Like there's a little wooden thatched hut in front of me which I adore and yeah it's just so nice to get away and to be able to look this far out onto the sky which is blue nice change and at trees and green now engineering can sometimes feel a little bit perhaps inward looking to me so you know we're sitting there we're doing our calculations the technical stuff and we're talking to lots of other engineers and so on but particularly for engineers that are looking at the climate crisis I think it's a really really good thing for us to go outside of our little bubble and speak to scientists and other researchers in the world of nature. So I'm really, really excited to be here at one of the forefronts of scientific inquiry and research in basically what is an absolutely immense garden with foliage and plants and trees from all over the world. And I think they describe it as a living laboratory, but we'll find out more in a minute. Ed, it's really good to see you here on this beautiful spring, sunny morning. Can yes. you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Ed Eichen. I'm the director of Wakehurst, which is one of Kew's two botanic gardens in the UK. Um, can you tell us a bit more about Wakehurst and the work that you do here? Yeah, so Wakehurst is a botanic garden. Now, botanic gardens, they perhaps are always associated with uh, maybe in an urban space. Mm -hmm. They're associated with plants laid out as collections yep. that are labelled. Uh, a botanic garden ultimately is somewhere that's driven by science, where, you know, science questions really motivate a lot of how we manage and understand the garden. So Wakehurst is a big botanic garden. It's 535 acres. <laughs> that's big. <laughs> 211 hectares. And it's not urban. It's semi-natural environment. Mm -hmm. So there's parts of this landscape which are very ancient, glacial, in fact. Okay. Then on top of that, there's a, an interesting cultural layer. This landscape's been used for centuries by lots and lots of different peoples. And what we have more recently is a collection of plants. We've got plants that are from the UK mm -hmm. and also plants from around the world. And it's a very rich asset, you know, there's, there's biodiversity everywhere. We're competing with birds trying to have this conversation at the moment. We are. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> we need to let them have their say. I think, you know, you and I sit here now and we do just love this scene intrinsically. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. just a lot of intrinsic value here. Yeah. But 
there's also a lot of interesting evidence that we can generate from researching a landscape like this. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And I mean, and what a view, right? So we're sitting on this bench and there's a kind of gnarled tree trunk in front of us and I can see this gorgeous valley, there's sun at the back, there are these immense trees. I can't even imagine how old these are. But, you know, when I, as a structural engineer, I look at a building, mm. I see different things than a person who isn't a structural engineer sees. So what do you see when you look at the scene in front of us that I haven't mentioned? <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason why I thought we should sit here is this is a very global landscape. I mean, we've got monkey puzzles, Oricaria oricana from Chile here. Amazing. Uh, very straight trunks, so very good for telegraph poles. Unfortunately, too good as a timber oh, tree. Interesting. And it's now, uh, unfortunately, endangered in Chile. Uh, another conifer here is the Dawn Redwoods from China. This was thought to be extinct, a so-called fossil tree, but it was found in the 1960s. And it's quite a symmetrical tree, isn't it? I think that's what's really striking to me about that one. They all turn out looking as perfect as this. Um, And this is a deciduous conifer, so it drops its needles in the winter and forms sort of a bare set of branches. But then we zoom out from those kind of very global plants, really from three different points of the world, and Mm. look across a meadow here. So this is Bloomer's Valley. So this is a traditional weald and acid grassland. So this is entirely of this county. Right. Uh, very floristic. So in the summer, it's full of flowers, absolutely full of insects, so clouds of butterflies. Wow. We think there's about 2,000 species of moth that live at Wakehurst. Uh, and at night, about 15 species of bat hunt those moths. Uh, we go beyond the valley and then we look across to North America, going past the cedar of Lebanon. Um, so we've got a North American woodland at the other end of the valley, which has six of the seven sort of big phytogeographic regions, like floristic regions of the United States represented. And it starts with conifers that we collected in the Pacific Northwest up in Oregon. So, yeah, very, very quickly you can sort of navigate around quite a substantial part of the globe. And yet it all somehow hangs together. Yeah, I'm a bit lost for words, to be honest, just yeah. thinking about going from yeah North America to Chile to Morocco and China and, you know, bringing that all together. I mean, this is obviously a very sensory experience. We've yes. talked about what we can see. Can you tell me a bit about what we can hear? Yeah, so a biodiverse landscape will support a lot of other biodiversity like birds. And we've got a very exciting avian population at Wakehurst. So obviously the robins, that kind of slightly silvery sound is Mm. the dominant because they just sing all day long. They're just Mm. constantly bossing people around and saying, (laughs) this is my territory. But you you can occasionally hear an even higher pitched sound, which is gold crests, which are quite a rare bird, Britain's smallest Mm. bird. There's a little bit of burbling going on, which will be the thrushes. So there'll Mm. be a little bit of blackbird, quite an everyday bird, but most amazing melodic sound. Great titch, which sounds a little bit like a bicycle pump, like... (laughs) (laughs) And then every now and again, it's probably something a little bit harsher. So we've got some interesting corvids. We've got ravens and jays living here as well. And I think that's what I find really interesting is that a lot of people will not realise how much science actually underpins this sort of landscape. So tell me a bit about the science, the nerdy stuff. For a long time, I think Q's focus was international. You know, okay. we, we have got partnerships around the world in very biodiverse places. And then suddenly, because of a changing policy environment, a landscape like this has become relevant and pertinent because we're talking a lot about nature-based solutions now, mm-hmm. trying to use various aspects of how nature works to adapt to and mitigate climate change, flooding, managing where our nutrient levels are, for example. So we're now starting to research this landscape to produce valuable policy insights, especially as we're kind of talking about, well, what can nature 
genuinely do in the fight for net zero by 2050. Yeah. So the overall programme is called Nature Unlocked. And this is really saying, look, nature is here. We know it's lovely, but let's use science to unlock some of the, the deeper stories and more mm. importantly, the evidence here. We try to kind of create a broad and balanced view of the benefits of nature. Mm-hmm. So we look at carbon sequestration and carbon storage more broadly. Yep. Um, but we also look at pollinators and, and kind of the wider role that invertebrates have within the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look at hydrology. So this is basically how landscapes can mitigate to and adapt to key climate change outcomes like flooding or drought Mm. and then the last component is so-called nature connectedness or more broadly how nature makes people feel can you give me an example of i don't know like a a policy that has come out of your research that you've done here i mean carbon is the biggest driver for a lot of things around nature investment so the carbon market is already a a fairly major global factor you know billions are being traded in carbon credits Mm -hmm. people are offsetting their carbon footprints our question is well where do you start when it comes to carbon? You've got to start with what we have in front of us. So this landscape it has an intrinsic value, but there's carbon being sequestered here mm. in this biodiverse environment right now. And tell me what sequestered means, just in case someone has... Yeah, so, so when we talk about carbon, flux is the rapid movement of gases, yeah. which include carbon. Storage is the short-term holding of carbon. Sequestration is the long-term storage of carbon. And the idea is that we're holding it back from getting out into the atmosphere. Yeah. And so, causing the temperature changes. Yeah, so the number one, what we have has to be locked up. Mm-hmm. Number two, ideally we add a bit more to that account. Yeah. We lock up more for longer. And that means, I don't know, trying to plant more trees, for yeah. example. Right. Yeah. yeah. You can generate money and credits with a new tree. But if you look at something like this grassland in front of us, mm-hmm. there's a vast amount of carbon below ground there, which has not really been valued or, or fully mm. understood yet. Somewhere between 70 to 80% of our global carbon stocks are below ground. They're in the soil. And you told me that you're a little bit obsessed with soil. Yes. And and then there was something about below ground fungi. Yeah. So the critical thing when we measure carbon, one, we want to say, where is the carbon in our biodiverse habitats? Uh, and we measure it using a, a so-called vertically integrated method. So You'll have to explain that to me. <laughs> so we have three components, really. So we, we measure above ground. So we use drones, lasers, hyperspectral cameras, which read uh, the sort of how plants are photosynthesizing and how mm-hmm. they radiate. We then measure the flux, so the movement of greenhouse gases in and out of the landscape. Okay. And then the final component below ground is we look at the relationship between fungi and carbon sequestration. So there's a whole group of fungi we call them guilds it's like a mm-hmm. sort of family association it sounds, yeah it sounds very royal yeah <laughs> indeed and and you know like a lot of guilds are hard working professional bodies well yep. our guilds of fungi work similarly hard we, we know that certain guilds have a higher predisposition to sequester carbon mm-hmm. if we find those guilds within our soil yeah we know that we've got a lot of active carbon sequestration going on so it's all about the abundance the function and the diversity of our fungi yeah and how, how they absorb and then basically keep the carbon there yes. do you award them with giant gold medals at the end of it well they should get medals they should get medals yeah <laughs> um, and maybe that's one way that we make nature more visible is we just start awarding medals to the <laughs> landscape to say thank you for everything you're doing for us um that's that sounds pretty good yeah. to me um so if I had a garden, what could I do about that? Well, the, knowledge. what fungi needs, what below ground biodiversity needs is some consistency above ground. Uh, and it needs associations, roots and fungal roots, so-called hyphae, work mm-hmm. together. Okay. So if we're constantly clearing our garden all the time, you know, creating bare soil on a regular basis, mm. there's not an awful lot for our below ground biodiversity to go on. 
So continuous cover, the idea of creating our garden as a perennial habitat, a, a perennial system, is the starting point. And if we can give above ground biodiversity, we're starting to support our below ground biodiversity. And the more plants we have and types of plants, yep. the more that our below ground system will, will kind of respond to that. Okay, so how often should I mow my lawn? Well, I, I think you should just mow your lawn once at the end of the summer. You should do like a hay cut, Ooh, okay. cut and collect. Yeah. We, we're doing that in our garden at home. One of my neighbours said, you're doing one of those rewilding experiments, aren't you? <laughs> Very politely saying that she thought it was a mess. But I tell you what, when we finally did our cut and collect, we found a wasp spider. One of the first sightings. I don't think I want to know what that is. Well, it was big and it looked quite menacing and it moved very fast. But it was also, because I, I, I used a, a, an invertebrate identification app, extremely, right. extremely rare. Uh, wow. One of the first sightings in Sussex, our local county. And that was merely through a year of just basically letting nature do its own work. So I can justify my laziness. Yes. Um, with good science yeah. to back me up. You'll be putting your endeavours elsewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm very pleased to hear yeah. this. So that's one of your areas of research is how we can use the underground world and environment to try and sequester carbon, keep it there for the long term. Um, you've got a few other areas as well. Could we perhaps touch on the nature connectedness piece a little bit? Yeah, so we, we researched lots of different things in the same place mm -hmm. because we want to understand the multiple values of nature. So in a grassland like this, we're measuring how much carbon's being sequestered below ground, but we're also seeing how this landscape makes people feel. So we basically want to understand which landscapes have a positive impact on people's well-being and mood. So we work with a partner from the Royal Holloway uh, University of London psychology team. Okay. And they have some really interesting, very kind of quantitative protocols to measure well-being and mood. And we do that for school children and for mm. our, our adult visitors. I think that is so interesting because we often think of humans as separate from nature. But what, what you're saying here is that, no, we're all part of the same system and we need it to work for everyone. It needs yeah. to work for us as humans as well as for nature. Exactly. And I think we can get so preoccupied with the destructive role we've had mm. in nature but we've also had a very constructive role historically and some of our most biodiverse systems were shaped mm. by human use yeah. so the american prairies you know the pre-european peoples make shaped those prairies yeah. even in the what appears to be the wildest place like the amazon rainforest <laughs> there's really interesting paleological evidence of human use mm. so we can be good stewards of nature and I think that invitation to step in and ask what your positive role can be, I think is critical. Yeah, and I think we've got a lot to learn from many of the indigenous cultures around the world on, on how they've coexisted with nature for thousands of years. Yeah, there's, there's a really interesting, the, the, the peoples of California before the Europeans arrived associated the word wild mm -hmm. with neglect. Hmm. If they stepped away and nature started to take a different course, they saw that as a poorer in quality, less diverse, and this whole sense that you are a good steward, that you take something from nature, but you leave something behind, that yeah. can actually be a very regenerative force. Yeah, so it's that dichotomy, it's a two-way relationship that we like. We should be focusing on, and I think that's a really good way to think about it. Um, so I love an arch. My husband always complains that we come back from holiday and all I've taken is photographs of arches and there's no <laughs> photos of him. But I saw some really lovely arches as I came in yeah. to Wakehurst. Can you tell me a bit about what's happening under those those arches? Yeah, the seed bank is an extraordinary resource. It's it's a building, so it is a bank. Mm -hmm. And actually most of it, to carry on our theme, is below ground. Because Great. that's where our vaults are. There's two and a half billion seeds that's a lot of seeds. It's a lot of seeds. <laughs> what, what probably is more interesting is it's 40,000 different species okay. banked. 
And whilst the numbers are exciting, actually, mm. it's the qualitative targets that interest us. So plants that have an economic value, mm -hmm. particularly within uh, cultural systems. There's crop wild relatives, so wild ancestors of our modern crops okay. that have drought tolerance and saline tolerance, uh, high nutrition levels. Which are, are different than today. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, plants that are endemic, so they only exist on one in one kind of island group or mm -hmm. on one peninsula. And obviously there, there's no backup population anywhere else. If they're lost, they're lost. And also plants that are endangered. So broadly, plants within IUCN's threatened categories where we know those populations are in a significant threat. Can you give me an example of when you might deploy some of these seeds that you've got stored away? Yeah. So the crucial thing with the seed bank is that um, it is there for the partners. Yeah. So your partners being um, like organisations similar to yourselves in different countries? Yeah. So yeah. there's over 95 countries in the Millennium Seed Bank Partnership. Oh, that's brilliant. And actually a lot of them we will either have helped to build up their banking resources within their country. It's far more efficient to bank in a country. If we can't do that, then we'll create resources in country uh, in partnership. And, and if we can't do that, then we will hold a collection here. And I guess the most visceral example would have been, say, the wildfires in Australia yeah. uh, a few years ago, where there were whole populations banked in the seed bank and we mm. were able to return those. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, there was a pea uh, flower, for example, that was able to just return to its population. Mm. And can you tell me a little bit more about the Millennium Seed Bank? Because as a structural engineer, I'm always really interested in like the parameters or the, the brief to design a building. And, and you've, you want to keep some seeds in there for how many years? Well, thousands. Thousands. So, so what kind of brief did you have to give the engineers that designed that structure? Yeah, so we, we focused on risk because it's basically a, an insurance policy against global destruction. Mm. So we thought, what are all of the worst case scenarios? We're on a flight path to Gatwick. Right. So what if an aeroplane hits the seed bank? Yep. Uh, what if there was a, a radiation leak? Mm -hmm. What if there was no energy? What if the national grid went down for two or three weeks? So all. So your of, freezing temperatures have, yes, have gone away here? Yeah, absolutely. So Or flood? Yeah, fl extreme flooding. Mm. We, we modelled every kind of worst case scenario. We treated it like a piece of critical national infrastructure. Wow. So yes, there is a, a very, very serious shell which underpins the entire storage area, yeah. which can withstand all of those threats I've just described. Probably a lot of concrete, which is the other thing that I'm slightly obsessed with. Yes. So we dug a very big hole yep. and we put a lot of concrete in. <laughs> Now we hope because it's there for the long term, we can eventually sort of uh, look at the long-term cost of the concrete versus the long-term gain of banking all of those seeds. Yeah. But yes, it was a fairly energy-intensive beginning, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. But I guess concrete is one of those materials that is incredibly robust and can be used yes. for this kind of purpose, which, as you say, has benefits in other places. Yes, yeah, I think there's one unfinished section almost like the future bit of the seed bank that's probably a concrete specifier's dream i would imagine <laughs> step in there and have a look so ed could you tell us what all of this research actually means for us in the future i guess you know the ultimate question is why does nature matter yeah why why should we invest in nature why should people care about nature why should people take action at home why should policies be more precise mm -hmm. so they can favor the best outcomes we know that there's a huge desire for action and action has to be taken now. We want wherever there is evidence gaps to start filling those evidence gaps now. So wherever we can commit to making a policy sharper yeah. based on science we're doing right now, mm -hmm. that really matters. 
you know, so much is about the long term. So much is about mm. the future. We talk mm. about net zero by 2050. Well, if we make the wrong decisions now, we might be mm. net negative by 2055. So it's trying as much as possible to institute this mindset of long-term, stable, evidence-based, not being this didactic scientist saying you have to wait for the evidence, <laughs> but just saying if you use your evidence better, you'll get a better return. Almost trying to put it into more into that investor's mindset. If you had a message for engineers, I guess, that are working in different fields of, of climate change, carbon capture and so on, what would you like to tell them from your perspective? I think help our sector, the broadly the biodiversity science sector, with that precision. So if I can just give you one very simple example. So the way that a lot of tree carbon is currently calculated uses a very simple traditional method, which is basically the width of a tree at where our chest is and then the height of the tree. And that tells you how much carbon that tree has captured? Is that the calculation? If the tree was a mere column... Yeah. It would give you a rough indication, but no tree is a column. Yeah. There's a lot of science coming in now about, uh, you know, so the, the allometric equations, the things which ultimately spit out a carbon calculation, mm-hmm. how much complexity can you feed in mm-hmm. at the other end? Mm-hmm. And, you know, trees are ultimately big pieces of biomechanical engineering. And you'll see, you know, our sector now, your ability to code, your ability yep. to do spatial analysis is, is actually emerging just as much as your ability to identify one tree from another. But I think also just this helping to change the perception of where where all the biodiversity is. And, you know, how can we visualise this below ground world, which is so significant and yet is utterly invisible? And I think looking at some of the, the ability that the engineering sector has to visualise really complex information into yeah. very accessible ways. And then model it in 3D and, yes. I don't know, create virtual reality worlds or, Absolutely. or so on. Yeah. yeah, I think you know, virtual reality here will not be a, a superficial thing. It will genuinely help to shift perceptions with those who need to have their perceptions shifted. Ed, you're obviously very, very busy doing lots of different types yeah. of research at the moment. What's next at Wakehurst? I think to start to measure more habitats, to start to measure farmland as well, which, you know, not immediately on the site, but near the site, because 70% of the UK is agriculture. Mm. And unless we have really good data for where good agriculture and what it's doing in terms of carbon again, then you know we, we need to fill in that evidence gap. And then we also want to keep creating new landscapes. You know, mm-hmm. this is a, a site which has never really sat still. So we're quite interested in creating a Silk Road steppe, which will Ooh, be uh, a, a kind of Kyrgyzstani grassland surrounded by an ancestral orchard from Georgia and Armenia. So this real kind of cradle of civilization and a mm. cradle of biodiversity. And you're working with partners from, I guess, all over the world to kind of create that sort of thing. Well, this is the exciting thing about being in a global <laughs> biodiversity institute that want to know more about Kyrgyzstan, we'll talk to our Kyrgyzstani partners. Uh, and the idea of bringing a flora to life is, is really quite exciting for those partners. We're now in a different meadow than the one I was in with Ed, and Ed was describing some of the different strands of research that happen at Wakehurst. And I've got Lorraine here who heads up one of them. Hi, Lorraine. Welcome. And can you introduce yourself for us, please? Of course I can. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Lorraine, and I lead the Nature Connectedness strand of the Nature Unlocked project. Tell us a bit what nature connectedness means and how these kids that we can hear in the background relate to your research. Of course. So we all know, and we know personally, but we know through science research that's happened, that being in green space is good for us. It's beneficial to our health. What we've been looking at here at Wakehurst is the why Mm -hmm. and the what helps us connect to the green space around us. And that is called nature connectedness. It's a social science system that looks at how each individual sees themselves in their natural 
environment as part of the world around them as part of the ecosystem so um, last summer at Wakehurst we did a piece of research which included 1200 children uh, and 300 adults the 1200 children they were on a randomized trial and they visited three different habitats at Wakehurst so they visited a woodland Mm -hmm. a wetland and a meadow we weren't teaching the children anything Mm -hmm. um, but we were modeling inquisitive and curious behavior so we took them on a, a walk and we were asking them to look at the grass to really touch the trees to look at the sky mm. to really take notice of the things that are kind around of all them. the different senses all the five yeah. senses yeah. really bringing all their senses and, and asking them to do things that they might not do in their natural environment you know sit on the ground feel it touch mm. the mud those sorts of things the interesting thing was all of the children got significantly more connected to nature in their time here mm. all of their well-being scores went up some um, of their anxiety scores went up as well okay. so we need to we're looking at what anxiety was being peaked by that and, and probably thinking about eco-anxiety but interestingly what we found is that children that visited meadows yeah. were significantly more connected to nature than those that visited woodlands or wetlands that's really fascinating absolutely fascinating and now we need to look at why that is now the hypothesis is that in a meadow you can see the biodiversity really clearly you're looking at a huge variety of different plants of pollinators there's a real which i earlier called buzzy things yeah those buzzy things things. but those but that buzz is really important in a Mm. british landscape we do not hear Mm. wildlife Mm. very much the adults we got very, very similar results from the adults, actually. Mm-hmm. With adults, we are looking at um, anxiety levels, we're looking at heart rate, blood pressure, um, we're looking at stress levels as well. All of them saw significantly reduced tre- stress levels before their visit and after their visit. Mm. So, yeah, loads of really fascinating research, and we are now beginning that journey of unpicking that so that we can use that to facilitate better landscape design. So, if we know that meadows are better for your well-being, well, why isn't your urban park predominantly meadow Mm. this isn't just about valuing nature and giving nature a value it's then saying well what can we do to improve the well-being of people everywhere through some of these results and how can we apply that to all of the different variety of settings and we're working with social housing companies Mm. and all sorts of things to really look at how we can take these results and apply them in everybody's real world so that everybody is is benefiting from this yeah i find it really interesting as a structural engineer to hear about you know the science the data that you've collected and the outcomes potentially of that data I know that you're still studying that and so on because I think we often try to incorporate green spaces into the structures that we're building um, whether that's through parks or we talk about green roofs or you know there's other bits and pieces that we're trying to do but what I think is really valuable about the work you're doing is that it's based in science and it's based in evidence and I would really love to see more of those kinds of solutions with that scientific backing being incorporated into the engineering. I'd love to see that too. And I'd love for the opportunities to do more research. It is happening all over the country. There are people doing research similar to this, where we look at not just where the green space is. So there's Mm. a lot of research around green corridors, green roofs, green balconies, but what the green space is. Mm -hmm. So what trees are we planting? Are we planting ecosystems? Are we planting communities that promote biodiversity? Because what we're seeing through our research is that is where the nature connectedness is. It's not just about there's green, it's about what is that green and what is that system it's the it. system i was exactly going to say that word system because it's the system of the human being but then also of the interaction of all the different things that you mentioned yeah. there and the soil because we've decided that soil is incredibly important exceedingly in our conversation and touching <laughs> soil is exceedingly important and making sure that everyone can see it and feel it and understand that it's not a lump of mud it is just 
an insane amount of things happening under the ground. Yeah, we often talk about what humans do to nature or our impact on nature, but we don't often talk about in, in the language that we are nature, we are part of it, and we can have really, really destructive impacts on it, as we know, but there are also positives that we can that we can enact should we have the wish to do so. Yeah, um, and I'm not a linguist, but there have been several studies done about the the cultural associations with um, the natural world, and particularly from a British context. If you look back, uh, since the 40s, the number of times that nature is referred to in songs, in poetry, mm. in culture, has dropped dramatically. And we have changed the way that we view ourselves and the world around us. Mm. And I think that has been lost in a relatively recent period of time. And so to just think about to stand in a landscape and just think about how you are connected to everything in the world around mm. you really does change your perspective on how we should design how we should use how we should create with nature rather than onto it and i think that's a really interesting point especially for engineers because i think we often sit there you know d doing our calculations we're on our computers or we're out on construction sites or we might be doing stuff in a lab or whatever so I think it's really important for all the engineers listening to this podcast to maybe look to parallel fields, no pun intended, obviously, um, and to learn from each other to see how, how we can have that more integrated approach. I mean, do you have any messages for engineers that you'd, you'd like to put out there? Go and sit under a tree and look at the structures <laughs> for half an hour and then go back to your desk. You'll feel better, I can guarantee it, and it's scientifically proven, but you might actually take something from it as well. I love that. I'm going to take that advice right now. Well, not all of us have access to a 500-acre-plus nature reserve to exercise our green thumbs. But what can you do to encourage more biodiversity or nature into the spaces that you do have access to? We got in contact with an engineer-slash-gardener called Nigel Palmer. He used to be an aerospace engineer, and he's put together five tips for gardening which are inspired by engineering. As we'll see, there looks like there is a common thread of an obsession with soil among all our guests today. Here's Nigel. Hi, Roma. I'm Nigel Palmer, an engineer and a gardener in the hills of Connecticut. I worked in the aerospace industry as a discipline chief, designing, developing, and troubleshooting aircraft systems for 36 years, making sure that they were safe to fly. I've also been a home gardener since I was 20 years old. My gardening philosophy is inspired by the complexities of nature and the problem-solving techniques of an engineer. So here are five tips for the home gardener inspired by an engineering mindset. Number one. Use nature as your model. In engineering, we use models to explain the world around us, organize it into systems, and predict results. I take the same approach with gardening. I think about nature and the growing of food as a complex, nonlinear system where soil, minerals, biology, and plants all depend on one another. By basing my soil plant model on the natural world, I can focus on what my garden needs and nourish my plants from the ground up rather than just how I want it to look. Number two, accept the weeds and never leave the soil bare. Soil is the foundation of any healthy garden. 
It's basically your plant's digestive system. And if we want our soil to be healthy, we need to draw as much energy into it as possible. But when you pull up weeds to make your garden look neater, you're cutting off a source of energy from photosynthesis and removing organic matter, which your garden needs. So instead, why not just cut weeds back, leaving the roots in the ground, minimize soil disruption, and never leave the soil bare? Number three, feed your plants the right minerals in the right form. Plants need at least 18 different mineral elements in forms that they can easily use to reach their full potential. By researching Korean natural farming techniques, I discovered how to make my own natural plant feeds. For my tomato plants, I gather ripe, damaged tomatoes and ferment them and use this to boost next year's crop. For other parts of my garden, I use minerals that might otherwise end up as waste. Vinegar-extracted cow bones have high concentrations of phosphorus that help flowering, and vinegar-extracted eggshells contain high amounts of calcium that help fruiting. Number four, measure your plant health. I use a refractometer to measure the sap sugar content of my plants. It's a small handheld tool that passes light through a plant sap sample and records how much the light bends or refracts so I can better understand if my plant feeds are working. Number five, take a look at the data. I could see that my plant feeds were helping, but I had no idea if they really contained the nutrients my plants needed. I wanted to analyze them properly. I'll admit this tip takes you pretty far from the usual home gardener's set of tools, but I found a lab that could analyze my mineral plant feeds for me. The results confirmed that all of the 18 minerals needed were present in the correct proportions and that my engineering-inspired approach to gardening was working. So, the next time you step into your garden and think about how to improve it, forget about the neatness of your flower beds or pulling up all the weeds. Why not consider your garden's entire ecosystem instead, the plants, the soil, and the biology, and work with nature rather than against it. Be one with your garden. Back to you, Roma. I've really enjoyed today's conversations, particularly thinking about the relationship between us humans and nature and actually realizing that we are a part of nature and how we can create a better two-way relationship. And hopefully that can help us with things like carbon capture, improving the biodiversity of the spaces around us, all ultimately with the goal of tackling the climate crisis. I've also, on a personal level, really enjoyed being in nature today after having quite a stressful few days over the weekend. And I can definitely see the benefit of the research that Lorraine is leading about nature connectedness and to see, again, what that relationship is between us, our mental health and our well-being and the green spaces around us. And hopefully you've also enjoyed the gardening tips that we've had from Nigel. I certainly will be taking some of those away and doing some of my own natural engineering when I eventually get hold of my garden. I'm about to hop on a train now, but you've been listening to a special outdoor episode of Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. Today's episode featured Ed Eichen, Lorraine Le Courtois, and Nigel Palmer. 
This episode was presented by me, Roma Agrawal, and was produced by Jude Shapiro. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists and thinkers. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook.